Who is God? What does the Bible mean? Why am I lying? What is God's will? I want to understand. Reconnect. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Reconnect, the official podcast of Shinjunji, or in English, New Heaven, New Earth. Once again, you are joined here with me, Ray. I'm happy to be here in front of the microphone. And what feels like it's been a while, I've definitely said that before. Hmm. <laughs> but each time, I'm extremely happy to be here to be able to deliver a brand new episode to you, and more importantly, the contents of that episode which is going into God's word. If you're unfamiliar with the Reconnect podcast, this is where we do a deep dive into the Bible. And of course, we have topics to share. And everything that we share on our Reconnect podcast is from God's word. You know, no extra sources. <laughs> no commentaries or anything like that. It's all from God's word. And we're here to share it with you. And again, I'm very happy to have you all here. So, for those of you who have missed our, our past few episodes, maybe you're listening to us for the very first time, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a, a brief recap of what we shared in our previous episode. Um, if you haven't heard that episode, by all means, go back. It's it's definitely available. Yeah, yeah, you can go back an episode or two. You know, why not start from the very beginning? That's good, too. <laughs> but to catch us up, last time we spent some time exploring. In light of all the history God has given us in the Bible, whether he would forgive any of us, if we messed up. Now, by messed up, we're not talking about the kind of thing people often worry about. In the Gospels, we can see so many examples where God shows over and over that he forgives us for personal sins, no matter how severe we, or the people around us, might think they are. This is, of course, due to a major difference in perspective that exists between our human point of view and God's. Now, don't just take my word for it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, channel I'm channeling my, Le my, my uh, LeVar Burton for you, but <laughs> don't take my word for it. God tells us himself. When speaking to his prophet Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. From our perspective, there seem to be sins of greater or lesser degree because of our own moral code, right? A product of the development of our ability to exist in societies. From God's perspective, however, there is only sinfulness and holiness, a state of being disconnected from him or of being connected to him, the creator of all and the source of life. One of the most dangerous mistakes sincere believers make is to think that faith and morality are somehow related. Uh, we don't have time to discuss this now, but it is important to recognize that morality is something developed out of our need as humans to live together in settled social environments. Simply claiming to have faith or to believe in God and his word does not make any of us uh, more good or better than anybody else. Although a lot of what the Bible teaches does seem to be something like lessons in morality, Upon further inspection, you find that most of these teachings are related to very spiritual things. A fact that Paul hints at in the beginning of Romans, where he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Then, all these teachings about physical things, the physical sacrifices, acts of purification, and rituals of worship that God instructs his people to perform throughout the Old Testament are, in the New Testament, called a copy and shadow of what was to come. I'm referring to a passage also probably by Paul in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10. And uh, yeah, let's quickly read one of the key verses here in this passage. And uh, this should help us gain an understanding of this idea. And check that it's not just something Ray is making up to sound cool on this podcast. <laughs> I sound cool enough on my own, right? Okay, you don't have to, you don't have to answer that one. <laughs> All right, so Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Now, the law you must remember from Paul's perspective in history is a law given to the people of physical Israel. It was a law of Moses. It was according to the contents of that law that Paul himself, while he was still known as Saul, persecuted the followers of Jesus. We did a two-part series on Paul way back in uh, episode 16 and 17, I think, in which we dealt with his past as a very well-educated Pharisee. Paul knew his stuff. <laughs> and yet in verses like Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10, and even more directly from other references, which we'll le read later, Paul explains that God's judgment will be carried out according to a standard that many people, despite being very spiritually educated, have not quite fully grasped. This idea, the idea that the physically oriented law described in the Old Testament is a stepping stone in a process of spiritual growth and maturation, is also expressed on in Galatians, another letter by Paul. Let's go have a look at what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Here we go. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. In some traditions, the law in this passage is described as a kind of tutor or teacher, a supervisory character put in charge to teach and guide us to a state of greater wisdom and maturity. Of course, from the perspective of a person in school, teachers often look a lot like jailers, or at least they did at times when I was at school. <laughs> but school is a place in which we learn the things we need in order to progress to the next level or grade, right? To a student, the day-to-day -day grind of school might seem like a tradition. Every day is the same, going to school, doing what needs to be done, and coming home, finish. Kids do that because they are told they must. While we were going to school, before we were mature enough to understand why we had to go there, we only went because we were told to, right? That is kind of how people carry out their lives of faith, too. We follow the traditions as we have been handed, and we keep them because we have been taught that they are the truth. As we have spoken about previously, tradition often ends up defining us because it is easy for us to see definition and create a strong sense of identity in stories of things that have happened in the past. But remember, God is not defining us by the past. He forgives our sins and offers to wipe our past clean. This is because God wants to define us by his own plan for the future. And this is where we come back 
to the idea of judgment and spiritual maturity. Since God is always moving forward towards his goal, he needs us to move with him. The covenants he has given his people at various times in history have always been appropriate for their specific situation and always aimed at helping them move forward towards his goal of reconnecting with them and finally being able to safely judge and destroy the spirit who betrayed him and corrupted his beloved creation. Ultimately, that is the purpose of God's judgment. God doesn't want to judge anyone other than the spirit we call Satan or the devil. God's judgment is actually redemptive in his purpose. Since the time of Noah, God judged Adam's generation in order to preserve the spiritual purity he saw in Noah and in the people who had faith enough to believe when Noah spoke on behalf of God. Similarly, when Moses and the physical Israelites entered the promised land, the land of Canaan, you will remember, they were commanded to completely wipe out the Canaanites who were living in the land. Remember, the Canaanites are the dependents of Ham and Canaan. Noah's sons, who, like the serpent in Eden, revealed the nakedness of Noah and ultimately led to the corruption of the entire generation. So Moses and Joshua are commanded to wipe out all the people of Noah's corrupted generation and then to occupy the land God had promised to them through what was, at the time, a new covenant. Did they do that, though? <laughs> no. The Bible tells us that by the time King Solomon was on the throne, he had taken 3,000 wives from the Canaanite tribes that God had specifically commanded his people not to mix with. This is described in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 to 11, and the result is disastrous. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom representing God's kingdom and covenant on earth according to the promise in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6, is effectively divided and destroyed because it had become corrupted and broken their covenant with God. God judges them so that he is able to make it clear to them that he is moving forward. And to make sure that they are able to move with him, he sends the prophets. While we often judge from a human, moralistic perspective, and perhaps often think that God might share that point of view, the Bible is clear that he does not. He is able to forgive far more than us, far more than I think most of us are comfortable thinking about. So if we can't apply our own morality and opinions to the standards of God's judgments, how can we know how God judges? I, for one, have all too often heard Christians say that they don't know how God judges, only that he will, you know, that saying, only God can judge. It's a neat way out of a whole lot of awkward situations, and sure, sometimes it's true. There absolutely are situations in which we cannot pretend to know how God might judge, and it is very important that we remember our place as Christians. We are not supposed to be judging each other or any other people. Judgment is God's job. Our job is to love one another. Now, as simple as it sounds, it can be really hard. One of the recent blog posts on uh, asitisinheaven.com, all hyphenated in case you want to check it out, asitisinheaven.com, hyphenated again, <laughs> Uh, we were talking about forgiving those who had wronged us. And man, uh, at times like that, especially when we have been wronged by people we feel should know better, like other believers, they can be really hard to love. But see, here's the thing about love. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8 tells us that love covers over a multitude of sins. That's why the first part of that very verse tells us to 
love one another deeply. And that is not the only place in scripture where it tells us that our love for one another has a redemptive quality to it. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Now, this is where things get interesting. How often we as humans tend towards judgment of others out of a feeling of anger or resentment most of the time, right? But if we look back to the track record God has laid out for us in scripture, we see that God judges out of love for his creation. He judges in order to preserve those who are faithful to his word, those who demonstrate that they are connected to his spirit. Remember, God's word and his spirit are kind of one and the same according to the teachings of Jesus. To preserve Noah and those who were obedient to the word God had given him, God judged Adam's corrupt generation. To preserve the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people whom God had promised to make his nation of loyal priests, if they would just obey him fully, according to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6, he had them completely destroy the corrupted descendants of Noah's generation. God's motivation for judgment is certainly not like our own. God doesn't judge out of a vindictive sense of being wronged. He judges to preserve that which he loves. If we truly love one another, then would we judge or forgive one another? We go on endlessly talking about and repeating the way in which we feel we have been slighted by others, or would we, like Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, uh, well, let's just go there. <laughs> All right. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Another translation suggests that it is 70 times, seven times. But the thing is that Jesus is not really trying to get us to do math here. He follows this instruction with a parable that illuminates just how much God, the king of all creation, is willing to forgive each of us and the consequences for each of us if we choose not to forgive others who have wronged us. When you have time this week, I want to encourage you to read through Matthew chapter 18 from uh, verse 21 to the end. From that parable alone, we need to understand that we are not meant to be sitting in any kind of position of judgment over one another. We do, however, need to remember that we ourselves will be judged by God. This brings us to one of the most challenging verses in the Bible that I can think of. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 3. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk still being an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, Instruction about baptism, the, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Notice how Paul groups the eternal judgment and the resurrection of the dead among the other things under the heading of elementary teaching. <laughs> teaching that he likens some milk food, <laughs> food for spiritual infants. That's wild. 
I mean, how many times have you heard a teaching about God's judgment that is clear and simple, something that could be considered elementary or suitable for young or new believers? We usually hear sermons about how if you believe in Jesus, you're saved. That's it. But as we have seen from verses today, just believing in Jesus isn't enough. We need to also forgive one another. We need to cover one another. And we know from past episodes that we need to keep our covenant with God too. So while we certainly should never be judging one another or holding on to anger or hatred or bitterness for the terrible things that people may have done to us, we also need to remember that we, each one of us, is going to be subject to God's judgment at some point. And here's the thing. God's judgment of us is kind of related to our own judgment of God. That might seem weird, so I'm going to say it again. God's judgment of each one of us is related to our judgment of God. Let's go see some examples in scriptures of what I mean by this. Let's look at uh, John chapter 3, verses 31 to 33. Okay, Actually, I'm going to read to verse 34. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives a spirit without limit. In this passage again, we have a reminder that God's word and God's spirit are one. Do you see it there in verse 34? For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God gives a spirit without limit. When we encounter a person who is speaking God's word in this way, like Jesus at the time of the first coming, we hear God's spirit in that person's words. Verse 33 tells us that the person who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. By accepting the words of God, that is the spirit of God, spoken through one whom God has sent, we judge God as being truthful. At the time of the first coming, the people who heard the words that Jesus spoke and accepted them basically certified that God was truthful by saying, yes, this guy is the one whom God promised to send. Remember how Philip called Nathaniel to follow Jesus at the beginning of the book of John. Uh, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's from John chapter 1, verse 45. And we've read that verse a few times over the past few episodes, so I, I hope it's written on your hearts by now. <laughs> by accepting Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, Philip was certifying that God is truthful. He was basically saying, God is true, God is real, and he's kept his promise. We can believe and trust in God. To Nathaniel. <laughs> in doing this, Philip, like the people who listened to Noah at the time of Genesis, proved that he was not siding with the corrupted spiritual tradition of the time, but was willing to take the leap of faith in the direction that God was moving. Like Abraham, who heard God's promise and acted accordingly to it, he was willing to trust God's word because he truly believed in the promises of God. By doing that, and by following Jesus' teachings, Philip and anyone else who accepted and followed the teachings of Jesus were judged to have crossed from death to life, of a resurrection of the dead, according to John chapter 5, verses 24 to 25. I'll read it for you. I tell you the truth. 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. See, Jesus even laid this principle out clearly for us in John chapter 5, verse 24, and I'll read it again. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. This is powerful stuff. <laughs> so what does this have to do with judgment? Well, to understand this, let's take a look at what happened to others at the same time who should have been more spiritually mature. I mean, the disciples were a ragtag bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, and other average people. The, the scribes and Pharisees, on the other hand, were learned men. They were educated in the scriptures and had access to them. Surely, if anyone at the time of the first coming should have been able to recognize the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament, it should have been them. But just a little further on in John chapter 5, Jesus has this to say to them. This is from verses 39 to 40. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. How was it that people who did not spend their lives in the Bible schools and seminaries of that time could recognize the truthfulness of God, while those who had dedicated their lives to the study and teaching of the scriptures could not. It's, it's tragic, really, but it should give us all cause for reflection. Which of these two groups might we have fallen into were we alive at that time? The Bible has three more examples of people who possess amazing spiritual maturity and insight. Three totally unexpected examples of amazing faith. Some of the greatest faith in all of the New Testament, actually. The first of these three is a Roman centurion, a person who was not even a member of the people of Israel. The story is in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. I'll read it. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the, to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This centurion, despite not having been raised in the tradition of the scriptures and prophets, put his faith in God, the spirit working through Jesus, and demonstrated his faith just like any of the greatest examples in scripture. In doing so, he certified that God was truthful and the result was God's blessing. Another amazing example is that of Mary in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, 
a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In John chapter 12, verses 3 to 7, we are told that this perfume was meant to anoint Jesus after he had died. But Mary chose to pour it out on him while he was still alive. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand or believe him when he told them that he would have to die. But Mary, she believed. She certified that the spirit working through Jesus, the words coming out from him, was truthful. And as a result, Jesus makes her an inextricable part of the testimony of God's work at that time. So what's so special about these two examples? They're not the picture-perfect examples of the faithful believer at that time, right? They are both outsiders in the community of God's people, but both express a deeper understanding and truer faith than those who should have been able to identify the one whom God had promised. That's what makes them special. They were, despite all appearances, eating the solid food we read about in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6 at that time. Remember, in Hebrews 5 and 6, Paul talks about two kinds of food. Milk, which is like elementary teachings, and solid food, which is for the mature, and which allows us to discern good from evil. Now, when you have time, please go and read that passage again, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. By being able to discern that Jesus was speaking the truth and the Pharisees and scribes, the traditional spiritual authorities, were not, both the Roman centurion and Mary showed remarkable spiritual maturity. They both certified that God was truthful and they were blessed as a result. Think about the time of the first coming of Jesus. As a result of the hatred of the scribes and Pharisees and the indifference of the Roman authorities, Jesus, the word of God made flesh, a love letter to us from God in the form of a man, was subjected to human judgment. Those who refused to accept Jesus because of the words he had spoken passed judgment over him and condemned him to death. If we apply what Jesus said in John chapter 3 verses 31 to 33 to this situation, these people would be those who rejected the one whom God sent and who therefore claimed that God is a liar. They refused to accept that God had kept his promises in the Old Testament. According to John chapter 4 verses 24, God is spirit. And according to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, God's word is synonymous with both God and his spirit. When he was teaching his disciples about God's judgment and God's forgiveness, Jesus mentioned that there was one sin God would never forgive. This is a passage that has been explained in many different ways by people who have tried desperately to understand it in different uh, denominations. Let's Take a look at it quickly, because it is a very important passage for all of us as believers to know about, and even more important for us to understand. When I say that it is important for us to understand, I mean we need to understand it in the context of the Bible. We need to understand it from God's perspective, not from the perspective of human interpretation or traditions of our den denominational doctrines. We have one God. 
Our God has given us his word. When Jesus was here at the time of the first coming, it wasn't like people had the option of either following God's word made flesh or clinging to the traditions they had been taught from the local synagogue. To follow God meant to be obedient to his word. At the time of the first coming, that means hearing the words of Jesus, believing them, thereby certifying that God is truthful. So, what is that one sin God cannot forgive? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. I'll read it. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So we have a big question here. What is this blasphemy against the Spirit? Well, in the light of what we have been discussing today, perhaps this passage is a bit clearer for us now. If God is Spirit, and His Word is also Spirit, Denying that God is truthful is saying that God's words amount to little more than lies. If we were to do this, we would not believe or follow Jesus because he would be nothing more than another talking head for us. Just another uh, crackpot teacher spouting fancy but meaningless teachings. By rejecting him and his words, we would be rejecting God and God's words too. We would be rejecting God's spirit. This is a sin from which there can be no forgiveness because if we are rejecting God's spirit, that is his word, then there is no way we can ever be reconnected with him. This kind of blasphemy against the spirit is precisely the sin that led to the destruction of Adam's generation when Noah was speaking God's words and telling people to get on the ark. We don't have time to go into this topic in too much detail today because uh, there's still one more example of somebody who shows us a clear picture of how God's judgment differs from our own judgment today. But if you would like to know more, if this is a question that you feel you don't really understand and would like to know more about, please reach out to us. Come on. <laughs> We're right here. Perhaps in the future we will dedicate an, an episode to it or uh, we can connect you to a study that we can definitely give you more insight into this topic. But getting back to it, like I said, there is one more example I, I wanted to touch on today before we go. In this last story, I'm always amazed at the stark contrast we see between the way we as humans judge and the way God judges. And it is a direct result of the way the scribes and Pharisees rejected the one whom God had sent at the time of the first coming. I mean, is there a more poignant image of the injustice of human judgment? Jesus Christ, God's word made flesh and sent to us because he loved the world. He so loved the world. Was judged and killed because of the hatred of the scribes and Pharisees and the indifference of the Roman authorities at that time. While he was being crucified among criminals, one of them demonstrated astounding insight and faith. So let's check it out. This is from Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, 
since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. There on the cross, one of the criminals who had been judged by people as being deserving of death was prepared to acknowledge that Jesus was one sent from God. Despite everything that this guy may have done in his life, his faith in the fact that Jesus was speaking on behalf of God meant that God's judgment of him was different to the human judgment he was suffering. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said to him. Now for you and I, living in the time where all of this is history, how does this affect us? We are waiting for the promises, the prophecies recorded for us in the New Testament to be fulfilled. Shinchanji is admittedly a strange name for a church, right? Our name might seem strange in English, but a translation of it is the new heaven and the new earth. A phrase from Revelation chapter 21. But that is actually not the full name of our church. Another part of our name is the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. That's a phrase from Revelation chapter 15. What is it that we are testifying about? Well, we are testifying that God has kept his promises and that many of the promises of the New Testament have been fulfilled too, right now, in our own time. Of course, nobody is expected to just believe this because Ray on some podcast is saying it. That is why we constantly invite you to come study. You need to hear the testimony so that you can decide for yourself whether or not these are the words that come from above. Just like Jesus was speaking about in John chapter 3, verses 31 to 33. If the testimony is true, then the standard for God's judgment, like the examples we read about at the time of the first coming, will be on whether or not we as believers accept that testimony. But the only way we can really find out whether it is true or not is to hear it for ourselves. Just like the time of the, of the first coming, we are in a dangerous situation if we trust the interpretations of our traditional denominations. We need to listen to the testimony and weigh it against the word of God recorded in the Bible. That is precisely what all our study groups and the courses I keep telling you about will allow you to do. Come join us for free. Listen and study, ask whatever questions you may have, and certify that God is truthful. Well, I, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, today's episode, and it's, uh, it's actually a special one for me personally because um, this is my last episode that I will be doing uh, with all of you <laughs> listening right now. Um, it has been uh, an awesome journey. From the very first time I nervously <laughs> made my way up to the microphone to, re to record our very first episode, uh, all the way up until now, all this time later, and for all of you who have joined along the way and have sent uh, emails and questions and then shared so many of your thoughts and ideas um, and, and had a, a, an honest heartfelt 
desire to want to know what God's plan is through his word. So that like this podcast, like the name of it, to reconnect with him. Um, I'm thankful for all of it. And um, I'm just, you know, if you have any questions, uh, I'm actually going to be working more uh, on that study side that I was just talking about. So if you do, <laughs> you know, decide to come study with us, there's a pretty good chance you might hear my voice again. You know, no promises, but, you know, that <laughs> that's what I'm moving more into. And so th- is this going to be the end of Reconnect Podcast? Oh, no, 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 no. Not at all. Uh, We have many more episodes coming up for you, many more exciting things to share. So please keep all of your messages coming, all of your questions, all of your ideas. Keep them coming because we're we're really happy to read each and every one of them. And of course, (laughs) be sure to like, subscribe, share with others. If you really like today's episode, um, be sure to share with others that you think like, oh, wow. Actually, don't even think. Just share it anyway. Well, I hope you're all excited for the brand new episodes to come because I'm excited to listen along with you. And that's going to be an awesome change as well. So as always, (laughs) for this one final time, as always, I've been Ray and you have been listening to Reconnect. We'll see you all next time. Bye bye, everyone. Love you.